Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5. In Phoenix, I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, why some conservative lawmakers are calling for the ouster of the Scottsdale school superintendent. And some Americans will have to start paying for COVID vaccines later this year. What will that mean for vaccination rates going forward? But first, social issues issues will continue to play a prominent role at the state capitol this week as lawmakers are set to debate and vote on measures that would ban public money from being used on diversity, equity and inclusion programs and one that would have the state education department come up with a list of books that should be banned in schools. Joining me now as he does every Monday during the legislative session to talk about what to expect this week at 1700 West Washington is Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. Good morning, Howie. Good morning. You'd think the state didn't have any real problems to solve. Well, so some lawmakers apparently think uh, these uh, diversity, equity and inclusion programs are a problem. What uh, what specifically would, would this bill, Senate Bill 1694? Essentially, this is mirrored after a bill that uh, Senator Jake Hoffman pushed through a couple of years ago to outlaw the use of state funds or participation by public employees in so-called critical race theory. Now, again, we can go down that rabbit hole. I don't think anybody knows what critical race theory really is. But this says that you cannot go ahead and have teaching or, uh, or, or public participation in anything that involves diversity, equality, and inclusion. Now, let me tell you, the definition of what that includes is, is just enormous unconscious or implicit bias, uh, transgenderism, micro-invalidation, group marginalization, intersectionality, neo-pronouns, inclusive language, gender identity, and on and on. And his argument is that we're getting away from the role of government. But this goes actually beyond what state employees will participate in. It says that the state can't have contracts with any firm that has diversity, equality, or inclusion training. So, for example, as Representative Priya Sundaration said, so the state can't do business, let's say, with 3M. Now, 3M is the company that provides the reflective material that goes on roadsides or Intel or Blue Cross or Blue Shield. And so this has much greater implications than any of the teaching of critical race theory because it is so inclusive. I know we don't use the word inclusivity here, but uh, it is so inclusive as to make almost anything illegal. The one exception pretty much is that you can't have training in terms of keeping people from doing sexual harassment. Everything else, off limits. Howie, safe to say, I mean, this seems like kind of a ridiculous question, but safe to say that if this bill makes it to the governor's office, it will be met with a swift veto? Oh, I think so. I mean, if she didn't like, you know, critical race theory, this is just so broad in terms of racial or sexual privilege, uh, structural racism or inequality, ethnocentrism, she's going to say, you've got to be kidding me. So she's busy inking up that that veto stamp pad right now. Right. And just last week, she vetoed a a bill that would have banned uh, critical race theory, what critics call critical race theory. Howie, another social issue we we saw last week debate on a bill that would essentially have the superintendent of public instruction come up with a list of books that should not be in schools. This week, it's up for a final vote uh, in the state Senate. What specifically would this one do? It 
tells the Department of Education, which is headed by Republican Tom Horn, you will come up with a list of those books that should not be in schools. And in fact, it even has spillover effect to public libraries, because remember, many small school districts don't have their own libraries. Mm -hmm. They have cooperative agreements with the local public library. And it sets up a, a system where you say, no matter what grade, these are, are, are banned books, because it doesn't segregate it out in the legislation by what's appropriate for a second grader versus what's appropriate for an 11th grader. And given some of the definitions in there, you, you start wondering, well, let me see. The Bible's got a lot of begatting going on, and that sounds like something that children shouldn't shouldn't be looking at. Now, you combine this with a separate bill that uh, that is going through that has to do with the penalties of showing sexually explicit material. Now, remember, that's already illegal mm -hmm. uh, unless you've got permittance from the parents. This adds a $5,000 fine to all of that. And so, as you, you know, point out, culture wars seem to be the issue du jour at the legislature. And uh, it, rather than the questions of, well, what else do we need to do to get more teachers or things like that? This seems to be the way to go. All right, Howie, another bill coming up for a debate this week. I want to ask you about it. It deals with, uh, it looks like giving state contracts to, to startup businesses. This is an interesting one because there's a lot of folks who say, you know, we, we need to encourage new business in the state. Now, the bill cannot tell the, the state to, to give a certain percentage of new business of its contracts to new businesses anymore. They can say the state must give a certain percentage of their contracts to women owned business or minority owned businesses. You can certainly try to encourage that. But what it really does, which is interesting, is it says that for your first year in business, you owe no state income taxes by basically giving you a 100% deduction of your proceeds, hmm. whether you're an individually owned business or a corporation. Second year, you get a 50% reduction. Third year, you get a 25% reduction. And the, there's some estimates from legislative budget staff that say this is about 36, $38 million a year. So it's sort of hard to tell because it's one of those unknown unknowns right. in terms of how many new businesses, what kind of money they're going to make, even assuming that a lot of new businesses make money the first couple of years that they need to have taxable income. But it, it's an interesting question of, you know, A, how much should we encourage new business? And B, are we providing an unfair advantage to a new business versus some company that's been around a while that says, well, wait a second. Why am I paying taxes? I pay taxes from day one for the first point I had a profit. Why are these people getting this this short-term free ride? Maybe time to reincorporate capital media services. Well, let, let me tell you, you know, I, there may be a new spinoff, you know, sort of <laughs> capital media services, perhaps. All right. That is Howie Fisher of the aforementioned Capital Media Services. Howie, thank you as always. Good morning. Scottsdale Unified School District Superintendent Scott Menzel finds himself at the center of one of the key culture wars facing schools across the country right now. It all began after Fox News aired an interview he did with a liberal Michigan blog back in 2019. And now conservative state lawmakers are joining a call for his ouster. The Arizona Capital Times' Wayne Shutsky has been covering the story, and he joins us now to talk more about it. Good morning, Wayne. Morning. So I want to begin with some of the background on this. I mentioned that Fox News interview. This was several years ago now, and I think a lot has happened up until now. Give us a little bit of the rundown. 
Yeah, so Fox News reported on this interview just recently, but the actual interview itself took place in 2019, which was a year before um, Superintendent Menzel came to Scottsdale. He previously worked in a Michigan school district. And the interview had to do with um, white privilege, um, kind of diversity, equity, inclusion, some of the things Howie just mentioned, actually. Mm-hmm. And the concept that um, you know um, people of color have been face systematic racism in this country um, going back centuries. Yeah. So this wasn't the only story like this from Fox that's going on right now, right? No. Uh, Fox has actually done several stories on a couple of different school districts around Arizona, one in Tucson over um, an email from a principal about students' preferred pronouns. That's also from several years ago. And then a recent story on a controversy in Phoenix at Washington Elementary where the board voted to terminate a contract with a Christian university for student teachers over its uh, views on um, gay marriage. Hmm. This all sort of plays into these culture wars, like you said, that Howie was kind of hitting on in the interview before this. I mean, it sounds like these are kind of trends or these kinds of conversations are happening in school board meetings across the country, right? Um, Yeah. uh, In my conversations with Superintendent Menzel, in fact, he said not only did the board know about this interview when they hired him, but he said that in his discussions, diversity, equity, inclusion, those type of topics were actually things they were looking for. They were looking for someone who could lead on those subjects. Um, And that is a big part of his career if you look at it. So um, we're definitely seeing a shift now um, with some more conservative lawmakers, some more conservative board members who don't want to be focusing on those issues. Um, But few years ago when he was hired, that was actually seen as a positive. That's interesting how it shifts. So as you said, now we're seeing some state lawmakers, you know, join in calls for those calling for him to be fired, essentially. Who are they? And tell us a little bit about, you know, what they're saying. Uh, Yes, the first uh, lawmakers that came out were some Scottsdale area lawmakers, Senator John Kavanaugh, Representatives Alexander Colladin and Joseph Chaplick. And uh, essentially what it boils down to is they said that his comments in that interview were racist against white people. And they are um, calling on the board to fire Menzel, who's also white. um, And they're calling, they're saying for cause, which would potentially allow them to avoid paying out the rest of his contract because he just signed a three-year extension last year. Hmm. We've also heard from the new superintendent, Tom Horn, on this as well. Yeah, he went on with, uh, with Bram Resnick on 12 News and basically kind of repeated the similar similar claims that these uh, viewpoints shouldn't be in a public school and that they should fire him for a cause. He also hinted that there are two board members um, willing already to to fire the superintendent, but they need a third because it's a five-member board. Um, no board members have said publicly that they're supportive mm. of firing him, though. We should be clear. I mean, can you tell us exactly what Menzel said in this blog interview? What What are they taking such issue with? Um, so it, it's, it's a quite a long interview, but to kind of summarize, he, he said he was talking about the concept of white privilege. He said, you know, maybe white people shouldn't feel comfortable um, related to um, systems of inequality that have been in this country that have benefited white people. Um, when I followed up with him on that, uh, he said that the lawmakers were taking those comments out of context and that he was just referring to historical facts, things like slavery, things like Jim Crow. And that he doesn't feel that, you know, that he treats every student equally, that every student in Scottsdale is educated equally, regardless of their their uh, race, their gender, their uh, any other social identifiers. But that he was just basically referencing historical facts that we can't deny occurred. Yeah. So as you said, you talked to him about all of this. What does he say about the calls for him to be fired? 
He said basically that the lawmakers have a fundamental misunderstanding of what for cause uh, means and that um, they can't point to a single thing he's done while superintendent that is a fireable offense under his contract. Hmm. Some, and he's not planning to step down. Right. He's not planning on stepping down. He hasn't been silent here about all of this. And there are some others, I should say, no. also coming to his defense, right? Like there were sort of dueling press conferences recently about this. Yeah, yes. Uh, the, the House Freedom Caucus, which is a very conservative wing of the Arizona legislature, of which um, Joseph Chaplick is a part, uh, came out and called joined the three Scottsdale lawmakers and called for him to, to resign. But then um, several Democrats, including, including Senator Christine Marsh, who is both a Scottsdale school district teacher and also represents part of the district, uh, basically pushed back on that and said, no, he has our support. Uh, the legislature shouldn't be meddling in school district issues. They have their own elected officials to deal with this. Um, also, at a recent board meeting, a lot of people showed up to talk about this, mm-hmm. uh, and the majority were in support of the superintendent. Interesting. So I want to talk lastly then about what, you know, could be coming next. As you said, Menzel's not stepping down anytime soon here, uh, but the calls for him to be ousted from the lawmakers are sort of ramp, ramping, ramping up right now. Do you expect anything to come of this, or do you expect it to affect the operations of the school district there and the way that he can do his job? Um, ultimately, no, <laughs> I think it's a lot of, it's a lot of bluster. It's a lot of, you know, headlines, but if they were going to fire him, they would have fired him if they had the votes. Um, we've seen in other school districts around, uh, the Valley, you know, Casa Grande, uh, high school district recently fired their superintendent because they had the votes. So despite some vague, um, comments by folks like superintendent Horn, that there are two people who want to fire him on the board. We haven't seen one super a uh, one uh, board member actually say that they support firing him mm-hmm. and um like i said if they had the votes it would have been voted on and so it, it's gonna, definitely going to be a distraction continue to be a distraction um superintendent menzel told me he continues to be focused on just running the district as he has since uh, he was hired in 2020 all right we'll leave it there the arizona capital times wayne shutsky joining us to talk more about this controversy in scottsdale wayne thank you for your reporting thanks for coming on yeah thank you for having me Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, archaeologists discover ancient jewelry made with shiny beetles in the desert southwest. It's the Contitus mutabilis beetle, which is more commonly known as the green june beetle or fig eater beetle. They uh, have a kind of a brown to red backside, but their underbelly is very vibrant, very uh, iridescent, usually green to red, but sometimes purple. We'll hear from the archaeologist in charge of the project about why ancient peoples were drawn to such a unique insect. Details are still emerging about the tragic deaths of two Americans who crossed the border into Matamoros, Mexico, earlier this month. They were kidnapped and murdered, caught in the midst of cartel violence that had nothing to do with them. Now, some conservatives in Washington are calling for a military invasion of Mexico, and many Mexicans are lamenting the fact that the intense efforts by Mexican authorities to rescue the two surviving Americans in this case are rarely used in cases when Mexican nationals go missing. But whatever the fallout, our next guest says this violence should be a wake-up call to all of us. Elvia Diaz is the editorial page editor for the Arizona Republic, and she wrote a piece about this recently. Good morning, Elvia. Good morning. I want to begin with your initial reaction to this news. I think it was shocking to a lot of people. Was it shocking to you? 
It was shocking that it happened to Americans. It's not shocking that, you know, that, that happens to Mexicans every single day. So in shocking in the sense that uh, apparently the Mexican cartels are incredibly careful not to mess with, with Americans because it is not a good business. So yes, it was, it was shocking in, in that sense because it rarely happens again to Americans traveling to Mexico. Right, to Americans. You have written about the violence in Mexico for years, which I think might seem surprising coming from someone with your background, right? Like you are an immigrant from Mexico. You lean left. Um, You write about those issues on the editorial page there at The Republic. Tell us a little bit about your point of view here. Well, I, I, I believe it's a mistake not to pay attention to that and only pay attention when it happens to us here in, in the United States. You know, yes, it is true. I have been writing about that for, for a long time, you know, and I have mentioned before, you know, those kind of columns tend not to do well because for some reason, Americans here or our readers just simply don't want to hear about it mm-hmm. uh, unless it is a political season and unless it's politically convenient to talk about it. But I mean, anyone who has lived in Mexico or worked in Mexico for a long time know that this is true, that is that is happening everywhere. Obviously, it's not happening in the entire country. And if you go to beach towns, for instance, it might be safer because the Mexican government obviously, you know, caters to, to tourists in, in those places. But I mean, you, you go to some specific states. I'm from the state of Michoacan, which is southwest of Mexico City. And, you know, the violence there has been going on for decades. I mean, even since you know, when, when I was a child there, I'm from a small town up in the mountains and in the state. I mean, and, and, you know, I remember the local police and the mayor and everyone else being replaced almost every six months because mm. of the corruption and because of the violence. So when these Americans were killed, there were reactions, of course, from all sides here in America. Conservatives are now, some of them, calling for closing the border. Some are calling for an all-out like military invasion of Mexico. What's your reaction to that? Which is so ridiculous. I mean, that is a problem with our politics on both sides of the border. So some Republicans saying, yes, we need to invade Mexico militarily. And of course, that the reaction of the Mexican president, and I think it's, it's, it's right on some, uh, on some aspects, you know, essentially he called those, those proposals arrogant. But then the, the Mexican president went further because obviously, you know, the, the U.S. idea of invading Mexico is to fight the cartels and to prevent fentanyl from coming to the United States and, and Mexico's president essentially saying you're crazy, it's arrogant, you can't do that. You know, the fentanyl problem is your problem, meaning American problem, and talking about the demand for such a drug. And so it's this back and forth that doesn't really do any good to anyone because then you don't deal with a problem. It is true that the United States has a fentanyl problem. And it is true that a lot of it is coming from Mexico. But if we don't deal with the demand here, uh, and if, let's say, we wipe out Mexico and, you know, the entire fentanyl trafficking is gone, then the drugs will come from someone else and somewhere else as long as the demand is there. So it's ridiculous. At the same time, we saw this other reaction kind of across the border from many Mexicans who said, you know, you never do this for us, essentially, when they watched this play out, when they watched Mexican authorities 
undergo this incredibly exhaustive and very quick rescue of the two surviving Americans there. And I mean, I think everybody understands this is a tragedy. I don't think anybody's saying that. But there's also this sense of of impunity being allowed for Mexicans, but not for Americans when they cross the border. Oh, my gosh. Yes. You know, talk about certain lives are worth (laughs) more than, than, than others. Yes. I mean, Mexicans were incredibly disappointed that the Mexican government doesn't do that for them. I mean, when we talk about the cartel violence, we're talking about actual lives being lost every single day in Mexico since 2006. So, yes, the Mexican government mobilized every single agent that it had to find them, and it did. So it was it's just so incredible to see. And I understand why the Mexican people are so disappointed that it doesn't happen with them. I, you know, the, the impunity rate in Mexico is so high. I can't remember the top of my head, but it's like in the 80 or 90 percent mm-hmm. of crimes uh, not being solved. So, yes, I mean, that really doesn't happen. And then this coordination or alleged coordination between the cartels and, you know, the Mexican government to solve the problem. It just it's just incredible that, that the whole thing. And I feel for the Mexican people, too that they have to face a kind of violence with with no repercussions. Hmm. So all in all, then, I mean, you, you talk about this being a wake up call or how it should be a wake up call for us here in America. What do you mean by that? Like, what do you think should come next? I, I, I believe we should, the United States should seriously be working with Mexico and those Republican Congress members that are urging to invade Mexico are not serious about really solving that. They're just political convenience here. Uh, I mean, there are ways that they can work with with a Mexican government, you know, to to deal with a fentanyl problem, with uh, with all kinds of of issues facing facing Mexico. But closing the border is not going to solve anything either. We know that the um, trade and goods and services with Mexico is nearly seven hundred billion dollars. So it's not like you, you can just shut the border. Tesla is opening a plant in Mexico as we are talking right now. Mm. So the trade between the two countries are not going to stop. So that that's why I think it needs, it needs to go beyond that rhetoric. All right. We'll leave it there. That is Elvia Diaz, the editorial page editor for the Arizona Republic, joining us as she does on Monday mornings. Elvia, thank you so much for your perspective on this. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Changes are coming to the way COVID-19 vaccines are paid for. Over the course of the pandemic, the federal government has bought the vaccines from the manufacturers and made them free for people who wanted them. But as early as this fall, that program will end. That means the manufacturers will be selling doses directly to health care providers on the private market. And that means for some patients, they'll have to pay for those doses themselves. Moderna has said that could run up to $130 per dose. With me to talk about all this is Swapna Reddy, clinical associate professor in ASU's College of Health Solutions. And Swapna, once this change takes place, will some insurance providers and health plans pick the costs up as, you know, lots of them do for flu shots, for example? Yeah, so here's what's important. Um, this will affect, like most things in healthcare, this will affect different folks differently, and it will have a lot to do with if you are insured or not. So if you are on Medicare, uh, your COVID vaccine should still be covered. If you are on Medicaid, your COVID vaccine should still be covered. If you have private health insurance that is 
covered under an ACA plan, then your COVID vaccine should still be covered. Also, if you are a child that is not able, whose parents or caretakers are not able to, to purchase the COVID vaccine, it should be covered. But if okay. you don't fall under any of those four categories, so who are we talking about? The uninsured and the underinsured, there doesn't really seem to be a defined program or a way to cover the cost of these vaccines. So you and I have spoken over the course of the pandemic about how this this very issue, about how different groups of people are affected differently and how the uninsured and underinsured in many ways have kind of been left behind in some ways. Do you see this as a, a furthering of that? Well, based on the information that we have right now, yes, right? I mean, as soon as these vaccines are are really sold on the private market, we're going to be dealing with the same challenges that we regularly deal with in the healthcare private market, which is it really ends up being kind of a competition of the haves versus have-nots, or if you fall under some kind of public program that will that will cover these services. And I think what's really scary here is what we saw during the COVID pandemic, at, at the height of the pandemic, I should say, is those that were uninsured, those that were underinsured, those that were low income, communities of color were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, whether that was, you know, actually con- contracting the virus or, act, you know, getting sick, being hospitalized, and in worst cases, dying. We, we know that. We have evidence to support that. Um, so we want to make sure, actually, that we make the vaccine as available for those groups as possible, right? And that usually means free. And so what I think from the public health community, what we're particularly afraid of here is if we're going to make them cost and especially potentially be expensive, that makes folks less likely to get the vaccine. And it might make those vulnerable groups extra vulnerable um, in the years to come. Is there also a concern that maybe even folks, for example, on Medicare or, or Medicaid, folks who would be, in theory, covered to get the vaccine, maybe they hear that folks are going to have to start paying for it and they think that they might be included in that and they just they just don't go for it? Yeah, well, you know, the misinformation machine um, is alive and cranking, as we know, with everything to do with COVID-19. Um, something else that's important to note with Medicare and Medicaid, the actually Senator uh, Bernie Sanders wrote a letter to the CEO of Moderna in January, and he's going to, he's the sort of, you know, the incoming um, Senate Health Committee chair. And he was very concerned about if the federal government has to purchase these vaccines now on the private market, what that will do to Medicare and Medicaid budgets, right? I mean, it's kind of a big question mark, but if this is going to be covered under Medicare and Medicaid, how much will it cost the federal government? Uh, it's a big question mark, and it's it's this is actually a really important point, considering especially who Medicare and Medicaid covers. Medicare, obviously the elderly, Medicaid, obviously very low-income folks, both groups particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. Right. Well, is there any thought that if even for private insurance plans, that rates might go up if these vaccines are going to be as expensive as folks are saying they are? And if these plans are going to cover them, could like could private insurance premiums go up? Yeah. So another question mark, right? What is this going to do to the cost of premiums for even those that are privately insured? Now, under the Affordable Care Act, all CDC recommended vaccines must be covered and free. But the bigger question is, is it going to change your premiums? What are these private insurers going to be able to purchase the vaccines for now that they're moving into the private market? And then, you know, as insurance companies tend to do, um, how will those costs be passed on to the consumers? 
Are there estimates or are, are folks trying to figure out how many fewer people might get the vaccine or get future vaccines for COVID-19 once this really goes into effect? So I think it's it's still too new for those estimates or trajectories, you know, to have been um, conducted. One thing that's really important, and we know this from the history of vaccinations, we know this from over 100 years of, of public vaccination programs, is when you make vaccines, when there's a cost associated with vaccines, especially a high cost, folks are less likely to get the vaccine. Um, and those that includes middle-class folks and especially uh, folks from, from lower income backgrounds. What we also know from the last two years of having the COVID vaccine available, even when we were creating incentives for people to get the vaccine, even when we were offering money or lotto tickets, et cetera, to get the vaccine, we had mixed results, right? So what we need to be doing is trying to make it easier for folks to get the vaccine, not adding challenges and barriers to get the vaccine. I think that what we'll see, it's too early to say what those numbers will look like um, because there's a lot of question marks still. But I think I think what you're going to see is just a, a, a downturn in the number of people, especially those that just don't have access to whatever this high sticker price is or able to pay this high sticker price. You're just going to see a downturn of folks getting vaccine. That, from a public health standpoint, from a societal standpoint, is dangerous because while we are moving into this endemic stage, people are still getting COVID-19, right? And we're still forecasting new variants. Is there a way to continue making the vaccines free? I mean, assuming the federal government wasn't going to, to keep buying them forever, are there other yeah. things that can be done to, to make sure that folks who otherwise can't afford them could continue to get them for free? Well, so, you know, the CEO of Moderna uh, and Moderna has put out a press release saying that the, that they are committed to everybody, anyone and everyone who wants to get the vaccine to get it for free, even when the federal government stops paying for it. Any details as to what that will look like, what type of program they might be a part of, um, we don't have. Number two, about how we might make this free or especially affordable for folks, I think that we're going to have to really look at you know, the role of public programs. So similar to what we have for ch low-income children, we have um, the Vaccines for Children program, which is a federal program that makes it makes that all vaccines free, uh, CDC-recommended vaccines free for kids who can't afford them. You know, maybe if there is an opportunity to create a federal option for the uninsured or underinsured adults that uh, also similarly can't afford it, that might be a great option. Expanding public programs, whether they're state, local or federal, that might be where the opportunity lies. But again, this is all new stuff. This is new territory for us. We don't know what this is going to look like. We have some previous experience with things like the flu shot, et cetera, but this is a new frontier. And, and so I think time will tell kind of what this will look like, what the impact will be, and then probably what our response needs to be. All right. That is Swapna Reddy, clinical associate professor at ASU's College of Health Solutions. Swapna, nice to talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. A major meeting in Europe this week on climate change will have the world's attention. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change will hold its annual gathering. With me via Skype for our weekly look at some of the key global stories in the coming days is the BBC's Rob Hugh-Jones in London. And Rob, what's on the agenda here? What's expected to happen at this meeting? 
Well, that's right, Mark. So it's called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. And when you look into that, it's the it describes itself as the intergovernmental body of the United Nations, and it's charged with advancing scientific knowledge about climate change caused by human activities. So a bit all a bit of a mouthful. But what it boils down to is the IPCC is really, if you imagined a pyramid of uh, all the kind of authority figures in the world of climate change, the IPCC would be right at the top of that pyramid. They are the, the most authoritative body in the world, really, on climate change and the effects that it's having, the risks that it poses in the future, and the efforts that are going to be needed to try and mitigate the effects of climate change and so on. So when the IPCC meets, the world tends to take notice because whatever report they come out with is usually pretty significant. It's interesting that they're actually meeting this week in Interlaken in Switzerland. All they need to do is look out of their windows there and they will see the Swiss Alps. And they will also see that the snow line, the Swiss Alps, is a load higher, a lot higher than it used to be, a direct consequence of climate change. When you go to the European Alps, people will tell you, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, they could ski to their back doors uh, and they can't now and they haven't been able to winter after winter after winter. So it's a, it's a symbolic reminder of the effects of climate change right there in Interlaken, Switzerland, which is where the IPCC meet this week. And we'll be looking to see what kind of reports or pronouncements they make, which, as I say, will be noticed around the world. All right, Rob, another meeting, this one going on in California this week, uh, featuring uh, President Biden, the prime minister of the UK and the Australian prime minister. What is that one all about? Yeah, this is interesting because the three of them came up with a security pact in 2021, a couple of years ago. It was called AUKUS, A-U-K-U-S, and it's a security pact that would allow Australia to build uh, nuclear-powered submarines for the first time uh, using technology provided by the United States. That was the original idea. It's kind of evolved since then. But basically, it's a, it's a serious security pact between these three countries. Now, why that matters and why the context is interesting is that China, of course, is watching this very carefully because if Australia has very powerful submarines, it's most likely going to use them in the Pacific, the Indo-Pacific area, uh, an area that China regards kind of its as its own backyard. So China's watching this carefully. And if you look at the language coming out of China, well, last week we heard uh, President Xi Jinping, the leader there, saying that uh, the West was, quote, implementing containment, encirclement and suppression of China, which very strong words coming from him. Uh, they were echoed by his prime minister who said, who said this, if the U.S. does not put on the brakes and continues to roar down the wrong road, no amount of guardrails can stop the derailment and overturning and, quote, it is bound to fall into conflict and confrontation. So these were really strong words by the, the pinnacle of the leadership in China. And I would say that the timing given just before this meeting in San Diego, San Diego between U.S., U.K., Australia over this very, very important security pact in the, in the Pacific, I would say the timing uh, is, is quite clear. There's clearly going to be a Chinese response to this. So we're watching for that. We're watching for what uh, the three leaders say, how this security pact evolves. But we're also looking for 
uh, Chinese reaction. Right. Interesting. All right, Rob. Finally, uh, closer to home for you in Britain, a key issue at the moment is immigration. And last week, the government announced a new tougher policy on migrants who come to the UK uh, without documentation. What does this week hold on that front? Well, that's right, Mark. So uh, I, I know, of course, uh, in Arizona and the, the southern states of the U.S., you've got your own uh, immigration issues, uh, of course, and have had for a very long time. Well, we have here, too, as well in England. If you go south, you get to the Channel, which is the you know the strip of water between us and France. And coming across that strip of water uh, each year now are small boats, usually very, very leaky dinghies, and small boats are carrying a lot of people, a lot of migrants who've come from places like Afghanistan and Sudan and uh, Ethiopia and so on, uh, who have escaped war, famine and other uh, problems at home to, to cross Europe and then try and get into uh, the UK and into England. Uh, and so they come across that stretch of water. And that's one of the busiest sea lanes in the world. It's a very dangerous stretch. You don't want to be out there in a dinghy, that's for sure, without knowing exactly what you're doing. Uh, a couple of years ago, 2018, we had 300 people trying to do that in one year. Uh, last year, we had 45,000 people doing it. And this year, we're expecting 80,000 people doing it. So the government is pushing uh, a much tougher immigration policy, looking to try and try and uh, stop, to, or trying to, to deter people and people smugglers in particular from doing this, uh, so, which means that if somebody lands on our beaches in one of these dinghies, uh, they will be detained and they'll be deported back to their home country or to a safe country, whatever that means, and they won't be allowed back into the UK in their lifetime. So they're trying to toughen up that that policy, but it's uh, contentious because people say, well, hang on, these people are uh, fleeing uh, war, famine and everything else, and Britain should not be turning its back on them. So it's a very contentious policy, and there'll be plenty more discussion about that this week. It's been absolutely on the front pages of our of our newspapers and so on in the past few days. All right, we'll have to leave it there. That is the BBC's Rob Hugh-Jones in London. Rob, as always, nice to talk to you. Thank you. You too. Thanks, Mark. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. The moral of our next story might be that people have always liked shiny things. A team of archaeologists here in the southwest have found jewelry artifacts made from iridescent beetles, apparently a status symbol in ancient times. Turns out it's a discovery that says a lot about an important transitional society around 60 B.C. and a universal connection to insects and the earth. I spoke more about it all with Michael Turlip, an archaeologist with the Kaibab National Forest who led the research. The initial piece was found in 1999 by Northern Arizona University doing excavations led by Francis Smiley, who is one of the uh, co-authors in this research. He was conducting archaeological excavations in a site called Boomerang Shelter, which is in Comb Ridge, which is a sandstone monocline, which is now, now associated or part of Bears Ears National Monument. And the site was known to be what we call Basket Maker 2 site, an early agricultural site in that area. And while they were excavating, they encountered this very small, about nine centimeter piece of what we believe is a part of a much larger necklace um, that was yucca cordage mm. or yucca string that was strung through the back legs of an iridescent beetle. Mm. And we started looking into more to see if there was this a one off you know, artifact? Was this the only one that existed? And we ended up identifying a much larger necklace 
with 212 beetle legs. Wow. In in the, in the, <laughs> and that was associated with an Olivella shell pendant. Now that particular item was actually looted, unfortunately. So mm. we only have rough notes from the person who looted it. But based on their notes, it came from a site called Adelattle Cave, which is also in Bears Ears National Monument, only located about 20 miles north of Boomerang Shelter. So I got involved with this research by first seeing at least the the fragment in the NAU collections and then wanting to dig a little deeper into what these artifacts were and what they were being used for. And why do we only know of two of them? Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So describe this for us, because this is radio, right? Like, these are beetles that we probably have seen and would have seen as a pest today. What do they look like? Yes. So it's the Contitis mutabilis beetle, which is more commonly known as the green June beetle or fig eater beetle. They uh, have a kind of a brown to red backside, but their underbelly is very vibrant, very uh, iridescent, usually green to red, but sometimes purple. Um, This insect generally feasts on prickly pear and other southwestern desert plants, but more recently uh, has started to feast on citrus and other farmed crops, especially in southern Arizona and Mm -hmm. New Mexico, Mm -hmm. um, which does lead a lot of farmers to consider them a pest when they're feasting on their citrus products um, (laughs) and their citrus crops. But prehistorically, they were definitely very vibrant and very probably sought after. Um, What's interesting particularly is we don't actually see them in what is now Bears Ears National Monument in that southeastern part of Utah. So Okay, so let's get into the why then. And and I know you've done a lot of the research behind this. Um, What did you find out about why they were there, who used them, what kind of society they were part of? Well, so we first got them the artifacts dated. We used radiocarbon dating. Both artifacts dated within about 10 years of each other from 60 BC to 70 BC. Now that date range solidly puts them in a culture that we call the basket maker two culture. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously the Hopi and the Zuni would not consider, uh, have different <laughs> terms for their ancestors, but broadly for an archeological term, we call these basket maker two society or basket maker two culture. And the basket maker people were this transitional people or transitional time period, I should say, mm. in that they're transitioning from hunter gatherers, which are usually egalitarian into a more semi-sedentary culture starting to farm for the first time in the northern southwest. Now, with farming comes a whole host of different things. As I mentioned, these archaic hunter-gatherers were usually egalitarian. We have good evidence that women were hunting and men were gathering. Men were hunting and women were gathering. Everyone had a role and it was fairly equal. Hmm. Well, as we start transitioning into sedentism and farming, we start to see you know, all of a sudden we have a surplus of food. We can now have surplus of food. So a surplus of food can also equate to inequalities of wealth. When someone has more food than someone else, they can kind of hold that above them. So this basket maker period is really quite fascinating because it's that transitional period. It doesn't immediately adapt to being sedentary and it doesn't adapt to being a, you know, status classified society, but we start to see indications of that. So it sounds like the jewelry in these societies would have been something of a status symbol and maybe something of a status symbol like that existed for the first time. Well, jewelry in itself to define jewelry, you know, just broadly, jewelry is personal adornment that signals some type of information. Now, jewelry can convey different messages in different contexts. So jewelry is actually one of the oldest artifacts we know of in human history. Mm -hmm. Um, So people have been adorning themselves throughout human history. But when we actually start looking at, well, what are these insect jewelry doing, especially with so few of them, my colleagues and I decided to kind of look into the theoretical perspectives of this. And we started looking at evolutionary ecology and game theory. 
Now, in a nutshell, there's two types of what we call games or signals. One is coordination signaling. And this is how people kind of signal shared values and knowledge with with the group that better benefits the group. Now, the alternative to that would be competition signaling. Things where we signal or display wealth, status, capital, and examples of this would be, a good example would be diamond rings. As a Western society, we've collectively agreed that this is a good symbol to show a potential spouse that A, we obviously admire them, but also that we can care for them. We have the the financial means to show them that we might be better than other suitors. Hmm. Competition signaling and it's in jewelry, the materials to make that jewelry should be relatively inaccessible or costly to produce, time intensive to produce. So like today we would also, you know, think of diamond necklaces and that. Prehistorically though, precious metals, gold, copper, things that would have been very difficult to acquire would be good examples of competition jewelry or Mm -hmm. competition signaling within Mm -hmm. jewelry. So these beetles must have been relatively rare in that area? Based on what we know from our current data, yes, these Contitis mutabilis or green June beetles currently don't exist in the area. And if they did exist prehistorically, they probably existed in fairly low numbers, Hmm. which would have made them costly to produce. You would have required intensive collection. Um, intensive time collecting literal thousands of beetles to produce these these items of adornment. Time that could have been better spent caring for the children, farming the crops. So whoever was wearing these things potentially either had the ability to take that time off and do it themselves because other people were tending to the crops, mm-hmm. or they just had the status to hire someone else or trade for these items. Yeah. I can see how that would be a big shift in in that kind of society. There's also this other connection that you talk about that these ancient peoples seem to have had to insects, like to the earth, that we may have lost today. Can you tell us about that? Well, yeah. Insects overall, and more broadly, arthropods, comprise over 75% of all species on earth. So insects are honestly probably our primary competitor for world dominance. (laughs) Um, So In prehistory and throughout the world, even today, insects still reflect many aspects of human society and really they, and in a lot of cultures, form the framework of human ideology and social structure, literally from language, ritual, and mythology, but as we even see a lot, even in America, recreation and art. Yeah. And insects also kind of mirror things we see in ourselves. They have beauty. Their actions can be deemed as showing determination and integrity, social harmony. Yeah. And insects also kind of reflect our own desires for rebirth and uh, resurrection through insect metamorphoses Mm -hmm. um, and their life cycles of changing from, say, a caterpillar to a butterfly and something we definitely reflect and kind of connect to. And so here in the Southwest with the Hopi and the Zuni and the Navajo, they all have traditional stories. Some of those being that they emerged into this world from underworlds and Navajo particularly believe that in these underworlds and at least one of these underworlds, they were insect people. Hmm. Hopi actually believed that they emerged from one of these underworlds as many different animals, but as locust and spider. So it sounds like this is something that is universal beyond the fact that we all just have always loved shiny things. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That is Michael Turlop, archaeologist with the Kaibab National Forest, joining us to talk about this new research. Michael, thank you so much for coming on and telling us about this. It's super interesting. Well, thank you for having me.
And that'll do it for this Monday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, for being here. For Lauren Gilger, I'm Mark Brody. Have a great rest of your day. See you right back here tomorrow. That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody and Steve Goldstein. Thanks for listening today.